Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. It's just an incredible story of God's work in the midst of something as simple as a shoebox. Next week is our deadline for turning those in. We encourage you to just consider as a family how you may be able to impact others with the love of Christ through something as simple uh, as a shoebox gift. Uh, something that's really neat about Yuri's story is our story here at Cowie intersected with her story this summer, and we were blessed to get to serve alongside her in Clarkston uh, as uh, the soccer ministry that she's a part of uh, was part of the summer camp that we got to be part of. And to see how God just knits so many things together. And so uh, sometimes I've, I've wondered, you know, when you see a, a, a child write a note or when an adult writes a note or when we leave some kind of uh, gift inside of a shoebox, what impact it can make. And she's just a great example of that. So I encourage you uh, to pray and to engage and to um, just allow God to use uh, us as a church and many churches around the world uh, just to, to bless others and share the hope of the gospel of Christ. Uh, we're going to be, thank you Grant, we're going to be walking through uh, some scripture in a hurry today. We're going to walk through um, this Paul's letter to Titus over the next three weeks, and we're going we're gonna to walk through a chapter a day. And so for those of you that know my preaching style, you are planning for lunch and dinner in the building, right? So um, but but y'all listen fast. I'll talk fast, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna just jump in together. And I want to start with just a little story. I uh, heard of this ship in David Platt's book uh, Radical, uh, and in his book he talks about this ship that was uh, built in uh, 1952. And so in the late 40s, the uh, kind of construction began. The United States uh, government constructed this 80 million dollar troop carrier for the Navy. Uh, the purpose was that they would design this ship that could carry 15,000 troops during times of war. And so by 1952, they have completed this construction. The, the, the SS United States was on the move. She could travel at 44 knots. That's about 51 miles per hour. Uh, she could steam ahead 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel, without stopping for supplies. She could outrun any other ship and travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. The SS United States was the, most, uh, the fastest and the most reliable troop carrier in the world. The only catch is she never carried troops, at least not in any f official capacity. Instead, the SS United States became a luxury liner for presidents, heads of states, and dignitaries. Various other celebrities traveled on her during 17 years of service. As a luxury liner, though, she couldn't carry 15,000 people. Instead, she could hold just under 2,000 passengers. These passengers could enjoy the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck, a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully, fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. 
You know, there's a significant difference in the face of soldiers that are preparing for battle and those that find themselves resting on a cruise ship, on a luxury liner. The way that that ship operates, the conservation of resources, the importance of the things that are at hand are much different on a troop carrier and a luxury liner. One has an urgent task to accomplish, and the other is free to casually enjoy the ride. You know, as we look toward this next week, on Thursday, we celebrate and uh, honor veterans. And I, I wonder, even in this moment, how many veterans might be in our congregation. Would you stand up if you served uh, in, you know, our veteran today? Would you do that? Let's, let's give them a hand. Thank you so much for your service and your, um, you know, I, I look back and I see many great men and women and folks that have served this country. And, you know, one of those I see is my father. And I can remember when I was about 17 or 18 years old, I don't remember the conversation that brought this up, but I remember us talking and he made the comment that when he was my age, that he was in Vietnam, that he was responsible for the lives of several men, that he was serving in that way. And I can remember in my mind in that moment, just this reality of the difference of mindset as me, kind of a punk teenage kid, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do on Friday night and what many, many have experienced. And I thought to myself, what a different mindset, what a different mentality. And as we think about the church, I want to first of all just say that I thank God that as we gather as the church and we gather in this building, this building is not the church, this is the place that the church gathers. And I'm so grateful that as we gather as God's church, that this is not a place where uh, we come and are so concerned about looking inwardly and trying to be as comfortable as we can in life, but that there are many uh, who live on mission for the glory of God, many who are willing to get their hands dirty, willing to engage on mission, willing to serve, willing to love your neighbor just where they're at, willing to love them in such a way that says, God loves you just where you are. We love you just where you are, but we love you too much to leave you that way. And God loves you too much to leave you that way. A place of high invitation where we desire that people would come and, and that we would be able to go and tell and share the good news of Jesus, but a place where the model of Jesus, where we see Jesus call his disciples and he would look at them and he would look at these fishermen and he would say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will transform your life into something different. And that's the message that we proclaim, the message of the gospel. And we uh, gather in, in a way that we say, you know what? We love God and we love him so much that as an overflow of that love, that we love one another, that we love people and that we put that love in action. But I want to tell you, we too, as a church, can benefit from the reminder that God has for the purpose of his church and the purpose of the gathering of his people. And the reality is that every church must decide, are they going to be a luxury liner or will they be a troop carrier that will equip and send out people on mission for the glory of Christ? And there's no doubt that biblically the church is to be much more like a troop carrier, preparing and equipping than they are a luxury ship. And every person will have to embrace whether they are willing to engage in the mission 
of Christ, whether they will embrace that kind of mentality. Now, today we're going to open God's Word to the book of Titus. We're going to try uh, to walk through chapter 1 today uh, together. So we want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Titus chapter 1 today as you're turning. If you uh, find a T in the New Testament, the Lord was, was gracious to us and put all the T's together. And so if you just keep going to the right, you'll uh, find uh, the right T there. And so we're going to be in this small but powerful letter, letter of Titus. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to uh, a young pastor named Titus. And it's really an instruction manual for the church. It's, it's in a power pack form that we could see just a, an instruction manual that would instruct us on what a church is supposed to look like, how to build a church that can uh, engage as a troop carrier, uh, readying an army for battle. So we're going to jump in, in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. So here we go. Paul, a, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. And so we see uh, Paul write, and he says, I'm a bondservant of God. A lot of times we see him say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says that I'm uh, living my life for the sake of the elect. I'm writing this uh, for those chosen by God. He said, I'm, I'm engaging uh, in this mission. And he said, there's something that he's teaching. There's something that is so important. And this letter begins with this truth, and it's going to end with kind of the opposite of this truth. So he, he begins with this engagement, and, and he says this that there's a knowledge of the truth that in followers of Jesus Christ's life, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, that there's this knowledge of the truth. And when they understand this truth, that it results in something in their life, that it, that it results in godliness. That when we understand who Jesus is, when we understand the gospel, when we are in love with the person of Jesus Christ, that we, we recognize his grace and his mercy in our life, that, that when we have this knowledge, uh, the apostle Paul would write to the church at Colossae and say that, that he would pray for them, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding, and, and then he said there was a result of that, that they would walk worthy of the gospel. And so he starts with this picture that our belief, right, that what we believe about Christ, that our belief impacts our behavior. And he goes on and says, uh, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. So there's this promise of eternal life that's promised ages ago, that's promised even in eternity past, that lasts eternally into the future. And he says the reason that we can trust in this hope, the reason that we can be secure in that is that we are trusting and we know that we serve a God. It's because of the character of our God, that there's a God, that this God can not lie, that our God cannot lie, and our hope is rested in his character and rested in who God is. So we see this picture of Paul, and then he says that, that at the proper time, uh, we see in verse Three, it says at the proper time it was revealed, it was manifested in his word. And so at the proper time, this truth is given to Paul. This word is given to Paul. It's given to Timothy. It's given to Titus. It's given in his word and it's entrusted to us 
today in the proclamation of his word, in the proclamation of the gospel. And, and because of that, everything that we do is around his word. Everything that we do, it is in the word of God that we find the knowledge of the truth that, that changes our lives, that leads to godliness, this knowledge of the truth that he is, he is writing about. And that's why we're committed to engaging in the word of God. That's the reason that we don't come and just say, here's the, the 10 ways I think you can have a better life. And here's the this or that that we take. And we open the word of God and we say, what does the word of God say to us? And how does it apply to us? in the midst of this time. And so we see just this incredible uh, picture of what God is doing uh, through his word. In verse four, he, he writes and he says, this is to Titus. So we figure out who this letter is to, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, Titus was a Gentile that likely had come to faith in Christ uh, by the Apostle Paul, that had likely been led to faith in Christ by the Apostle Paul. He refers to him in similar affection as he does Timothy. He gives him this, this picture of this affection that he has for him. He and Titus had been together. Uh, he had been together with Paul as a co-worker and companion. He had served with him uh, on a missionary journey from Antioch to Jerusalem. He had been uh, with him. And we see in this passage that, that Paul had left him at Crete. And we're going to see why in verse 5. He says, for this reason, I left you at Crete. So why is it that Titus has found himself here? And then Paul writes this letter that's going to be read, uh, and, and the church is going to hear this letter. And he says, listen, there's, there's authority in the word of God. And here's what Paul has me here to do as Titus. So as he reads that, that's going to be the message that people are hearing. And here's the message that Paul gives to him. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So he says, hey, I'm gonna, I've left you here, and your role and your job is is to set things in order. Now, when we think about setting something in order, it, it gives this picture of bringing something to order beyond what's already there. So there was a semblance of organization. There was a semblance of the church there. We're, we're seeing, uh, we don't know exactly how that came about. There were, there were uh, people who were impacted in Acts 2 that were from Crete. So there may have been that there were people that responded to the gospel there that uh, may have been that during these journeys that Paul had stopped off there. And because of that, uh, he'd engaged them with the gospel. But what we see is that there's this call to set something in order, to set something straight. In the Greek, that word for set straight, it's a word that we get like orthopedics and that we get ortho. And so there's a, how many of you have broken a leg or arm or some kind of bone before and you've had that set straight? I brought today uh, with me the parts that came out of my wife's back after her, our car accident uh, years back. And so I've got all these metal pieces that were there and then held rods in place that assembled her back together and so it was broken and it was out of place and so this surgeon went in and delicately uh, went in and set that in order and made that straight. So it's that kind of picture that he's setting that straight, setting that in order. And so we're thinking about that. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, I had this broken leg. It really wasn't that big a deal. I had a fractured wrist and they just had to put a cast on that. Uh, but this picture is like, what was that like in Crete? What was that like for uh, Titus to have that responsibility? And, and we have to know a little bit about the people that were there, right? And if you know about Crete, you know that there was an, an enormous task that was at hand. Historians would say uh, that the politicians in that area, that nowhere uh, were people more corrupt with this uh, public uh, policy that was tilted more toward the people in power, that there was no place really where people gathered uh, in a way that was maybe be more immoral. There was such an immoral place that even their own poets, right, we'll see that later in this chapter, would call them uh, lazy uh, gluttons and drunkards, that they were people that were uh, just in this sinful culture, the evil beasts and liars their own people would say about them. 
Now, while we have been a church that has been established since 1828, right? And, and we have seen God just assemble a great body of believers, right? And when I became pastor here, it wasn't like there's, hey, there's all this stuff to set in order because God had already been doing a work. But I want you to see something, though. We live in the midst of a culture that is much like that of Crete. We live in the midst of, an, of a culture where immorality is celebrated. We live in the midst of a place where, where immorality is expected for others to be celebrated, where the church and where, the, where Christianity and where the pastor is really made fun of and the butt of many jokes and looked down upon and, and where the headlines that fill the major newspapers are of a pastor falling immorally here, of denominations fighting from within. When you open up social media and you have Twitter and Facebook, you see people that are professing to be followers of Jesus Christ arguing over foolish things. And we live in a culture in so many ways where, where media and where uh, the culture even desires to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in the midst of an immoral and, and just crazy world, in a place where many would say the church is outdated, where many would say that the Word of God uh, is an ancient book with no uh, relevance to our time today. We find ourselves in a culture like that. And in a culture like that, the church finds themselves not in a time to have a, uh, a peacetime mentality, but we recognize that we find ourselves in the midst of a battle for the hearts and minds of our young people, in the midst of a battle for the truth. And that's where uh, Paul is going to start with Titus. He's going to say, here's the way that you engage in the midst of a culture like this. We find ourselves in a culture where many churches would be described as luxury liners instead of troop carriers, where they've been inwardly focused and said, you know what? We're consumers and we want to do everything that we can to have everything the way that we want it, where people come together and have been coddled and under-challenged, impacted by false teaching in such a way that a luxury liner mentality has been the mentality of the church. We've become comfortable in so many ways in our culture, maybe not in this church, but in our culture with being a luxury liner that is content with being comfortable instead of carrying the cross that Jesus has called us to bear. And so Paul writes to Titus. He reminds him of this purpose that he has for him in Crete, and he desires that he would teach uh, that he would appoint elders that would teach sound doctrine that would produce sound disciples. So we're going to see Paul use this word sound throughout this letter in different places. It's a, it's a picture of being healthy or being correct. So that word, when you see sound, uh, you're going to see it in that, uh, this, this correct teaching, this sound doctrine, this sound in the faith. And so the question that we have today that brings us into this place is how can we be a sound church in the midst of a broken world? How can we be a church that stands on the truth, that fights for righteousness, but engages in culture with the hope of the gospel? How can we be a church that that, that engages in a way that, that communicates the mission of Christ, right? The gospel that's been given to us. How do we do that? And I believe we can lean into this letter. And I believe we can see the steps that we might take. I believe we can see first that God desires these, uh, these sound leaders, right? to be appointed and that they would proclaim sound doctrine. They would teach, they would stand for the word of God, that they would stand for the truth of God. This is the call of the church. So let's jump back in 
Verse 5, he says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. Now, Paul's given him this huge task, and he said, Hey, I want you to appoint these elders in every city. This is the beginning of setting things in order. And he continues by giving characteristics of these men in this passage. Now, I want you to... to Lean in a little bit. I'm going to preach to myself. I'm going to preach to Pastor Chris. I'm going to preach to Pastor Ronnie. We're going to let you listen in. But here's the truth. The reality is that what is required of the pastor should be reflected in the congregation. What is a requirement for the pastor should be the truth that is lived out in every life of every believer. The the qualifications of a pastor should be the qualities of every believer. Believer. So when you hear these things, these are what God has called us all to and what God expects of his church and requires of his elders. So he says, appoint these elders in every city. And now there's only two offices. We need to establish just a couple of things. There's only two offices in uh, the local church. And so we see the office of elder and the office of deacon. So we see these two uh, these two offices in the church, the term elder, which is in the Greek, is presbyteros. It's this uh, more common uh, term that we see through the scripture. And what's interesting is almost always this term is referred to in the plural. It almost always refers to the plural or is appearing in the plural in the New Testament when there is people addressing leaders of the church. Now, you'll find that there's no specific number that's indicated, that there's no clarity on that. And what the focus is on is on the character, not the quantity of these men. And so it gives us this perspective that there is room uh, for flexibility in the congregational form of government. But there's always, uh, I believe, to be a plurality of leadership in the local body of Christ. That you should never see a guy like me standing along with, with uh, this um, this oversight that is singular, right? That there should be plurality there. Uh, we'll see in the next verse this thought of overseer, this word that we would get. It's uh, episkopos, which is a, a word for bishop or uh, overseer. Uh, we would see that in the Scripture. And what we see in uh, the entirety of Scripture is that these words elder, um, uh elder, overseer, and pastor, that they're used interchangeably to refer to the same office. So we see some of those places where we see those words all used uh, interchangeably. Now, these shepherds that Titus is to appoint, we're going to see of some characteristics of them. And these characteristics, again, apply to all of us, but, but we're going to look at that in this thought of what sound leaders look like. And so the first thing we see is that sound leaders are to be men. They must be men of character. Look at verse 6. He says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So he's given some characteristics of those that are to be appointed to this, uh, to this role, that they're to be appointed to this. And he says that these are people who live the word. Now, you know, sometimes people will ask me, hey, Jason, do you like Reese cups or do you like ice cream? And my answer to them is only when I'm with somebody and when I'm by myself. Just those two times. That's the only time I like it. That's it. When I'm with somebody or by myself. And here's what the Apostle Paul is, is writing to Titus. And he says that these people that are appointed, that these men, that they are to be above reproach, whether they're with somebody or whether they're by themselves. That they're to be faithful men. They're to be faithful men in public, above reproach. They're to be faithful men in the home. And they're to be faithful men when they are in private. Now, this thought of, of a being above reproach, this is a standard right for pastors and, a, and, a, and also an expectation for God's people that we should live our lives in a way that reflects the image of Christ. 
Christ and, and does not do damage to the name of Christ by the way that we live our life. So there's this public stance, then there's this reality of in the home, there's this reality. And, and here's the truth, if, if Christianity is not working in our home, it's not working at all. And so we see that the character of these men, right, that they're to be the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, it says that they're to be a one-woman man. This is someone that we, we could lean into this and we could spend a lot of time looking at each characteristic. We're not going to do uh, that for the sake of time today. But what we can know is that this is the kind of man who is faithful to his wife, that this is the kind of man, that this man, he is faithful to his wife. He is not a polygamist. He's not promiscuous. He's not addicted to pornography. He, he's not uh, consumed with any of those kind of things, that he is a man that is faithful to his wife, that he is a pastor to his home. Uh, look at this, this verse. It says that, that he uh, is, is to have children who believe and not uh, accused of dissipation or rebellion. This, this thought of rebellion is this thought that they're not willing to take direction or to take order, that they are uh, to be uh, people that are subject, right, to leadership, that these children are to be there. So they're to be faithful to their wife. They're to be faithful in leading their children. And, and here's this balance, right? And we talk about this as a staff and as we talk about uh, just our pastoral role and the things that are there. As, as men, we have a responsibility, right, to shepherd this church, but we also have a responsibility to shepherd our home. And so there's this balance of that. And I tell uh, our staff, and I recognized as a young pastor that there's a role that I have that no one else can have. And so there's things that we don't always get involved in. We can't be everywhere and we can't do all those things because there's only one person in this room that can be a husband to my wife. There's only one person in this room that can be a father to my children, right? And, and I've heard too many pastors say that, you know what, I love my dad being in ministry and all those kind of things, but I always felt like the church was first. And I want to just say, you know what, I want my kids to feel like, you know what, they're a priority in my life. I want my wife to know that they're a priority in my life. And I want you to know that you're a priority in my life. And what that means is that we live our lives, not selfishly. We're going to see that in uh, this passage, right? That we're going to be all there because th this, this role that we have is that we would pour our very lives out for the sake of the gospel in public, in private, in our homes, in congregational fellowship with one another as we live our lives together serving Jesus. Because here's the reality. Look in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, can I tell you and remind you this morning that this is not my church and it's not your church. It's God's church and he is, is the head of the church. And we come, he says, as God's stewards, listen, we are overseers of the local church, giving it direction, oversight, all those kind of things. But it is his church and we steward his church. What a responsibility that is. And he goes on to say, not self-willed, we're surrendered to his will, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, this thought of being combined or quarrelsome is what that means. Not fond of sordid gain, so they're not in it for the money. Although I'm sure that you can find uh, on some television station this morning that if you'll just send this amount of money, that you'll receive this amount of thing, or that you'll do this, or you'll do that. And somehow, uh, if you do this, that you'll be blessed. There's a prosperity gospel, right, that's in our country uh, that is, is just spreading false teaching uh, around this thought of wealth and, and this thought of God's desire in that. And so, so we see these kind of things that sound leaders, they're to be men of character. That's who they are supposed to be. The second thing we're going to see is they're to be men of consistency. He goes on and says, but they're hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout. That's the word for, for holy, this word devout, uh, self-controlled. We, we read all those things, this word hospitable, it literally means loving the stranger. It means those that are foreigners, those that are different from us, that there's this hospitable love that is there. 
And you know, we think about what is the greatest need of our congregation? What is the greatest gift that I could give to this congregation? And I might think, you know what, it's, it's to learn and study and do everything I can to learn the Word of God and exposit it in the best way that I can. But Robert Murray McShane said this, and it stuck with me. Uh, the Scottish pastor said this, my, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. I want you to soak that in, right? The, your neighbor's greatest need, the, the, the church's greatest need is our personal holiness, that we might consider our lives uh, to be uh, a life that is poured out for the glory of God and that we might live our lives in a way uh, that reflects the holiness of God in our lives. Now, we're not perfect. There's none of us that are perfect, right? There's none of us that are sinless, but the scripture calls them to be blameless. Pastors, deacons, ministry leaders, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, all those, whatever way that you serve, your greatest gift to your people is your personal holiness. These sound leaders, they're to be men of character, they're to be men of consistency, and they're to be men of conviction. Look at verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance to the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So these people, these men that are appointed, they are to love the word, and they're to love the word so much that they're willing to stand on the word, that they're willing to share the word, and that they're willing to love the flock with the word. You see it? It says exhort in sound doctrine. Now, this word sound, this is this, uh, this thought that we said, hey, complete and true. When we exhort, this word for exhort, it's the same word that we get the word paraclete, which is what we refer to the Holy Spirit by. So we see this picture of this exhorting. So there's this imploring, there's this urging, there's this uh, picture of of exhortation, but we might refer to it. I got a call the other day, my little boy's playing basketball, and I got a call and they said, hey, would you be willing to coach? And I had to say, you know what, I don't think I could take that on in this season, but it might be a modern word that we would understand what it might look like to exhort, that we would coach, that we would bring someone along, that we would urge, that we would encourage. Uh, but then there's the word refute. And throughout the New Testament, we see this word translated refute has this specific uh, purpose. And it's this thought that they would show uh, and, and reveal uh, sin and then would uh, summon people to repentance. And so there's this, this specific uh, way, there's this refuting that desires repentance and restoration. So we see that all through the scripture. So these leaders, these people that God desires to lead the church, the people that God desires to use are to be men of character, men of consistency, men of conviction. But we're going to see that they are to be men also of courage. And we live in a day where we need men of courage. We need people that will stand up and stand on the word of God, that will stand for righteousness, that will proclaim the truth, that will live for something greater than themselves, that will recognize, hey, we are not on a luxury liner, but we find ourselves in a battle with a mission that's real, with an enemy that's real. We are on a battleground and troops need to engage in this war because here's the way it works. The enemy is taking and twisting the word of God. We live in a culture that is attacking the deity of Christ, that is attacking the word of God, the sufficiency of the cross. We find ourselves in that place. And we see in verse 10 that here's what Titus had found himself in as well. It says, for there are many rebellious men. This word rebellious, it's, it's the meaning of insubordinate. So we saw kids that were not rebellious, that they were subordinate. We, we see this uh, referring to these faithful elders, these uh, faithful elders that were submitting and holding firmly to the trustworthy message. These were people that were not doing that. Rebellious men, empty talkers, Scripture says. Uh, this thought of uh, just words that, that meant nothing, right? Fruitless talk. 
uh, one pastor said it this way. He said, you can always spot those that don't teach the truth by the way they say absolutely nothing beautiful, right? That's the kind of thought that we're in. He says that there are many that are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So in this particular time, uh, there's this teaching that Gentiles must also be circumcised. So it's not just faith in Christ in, through repentance and surrender to Christ that people are saved, but they have to do that and be circumcised. So he says that there's these false teachers that are out there, and he says they must be silenced. Look at verse 11. He says they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So their motives, we see here, that they're looking uh, for monetary gain, that they're teaching false they're walking in that kind of way and that there are families that are being impacted by false teachings. Look at what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says this, in the absence of strong Christian communities where believers studied together and benefited from mutual accountability and encouragement, households on the island became easy targets for false teachers. This same tactic is commonly used today. Pseudo-Christian religions such as Mormonism and the Jehovah Witnesses seek out poorly informed believers who have little or no involvement in a local church. They organize at-home Bible studies where scripture is gradually displaced by other teaching materials. And to avoid alarming their prey, these false teachers cleverly couch their lessons in terms that many would recognize from Sunday school. Their doctrine is, however, anything but Orthodox Christian truth. See, this is happening all around. You know, somebody shared with me that they had pulled through the drive-thru of a restaurant and met someone and began to engage with them and invite them, talk to them about church. And they said these words. They said, I used to go to Cowie Baptist, but now I'm a Jehovah's Witness. They were marginally engaged, right? Just walking in a church doesn't make you part of it, but here's the, here's the reality that, that we have a responsibility to disciple and teach the truth. When we, we are to stand against false teaching, we are to, to correct and rebuke, we're to stand in the, in the gap in these places. And what are these false teachings, right? They're anything that opposes a fundamental truth or something that uh, is core to what is necessary for salvation. This is uh, any teaching that might would say that there are many ways to God and that's what our culture looks like. They say that really the only thing that matters is that you sincerely believe. It's not, we live in a culture that says, hey, as long as you really believe it, as long as you're sincere, that that's okay. But the, but the reality is the scripture says that there's only one way under heaven, that there's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's only one way to the Father. Any teaching that denies the deity of Christ, that denies the virgin birth of Christ, his sinless nature, his actual physical death, his physical resurrection, right? Those kind of things. Any teaching that adds anything to the finished work of Christ as necessary for salvation. In this time, it was Gentiles needing to be circumcised. It might be baptism. It might be whatever those things are that says, hey, you know what? In order for you to be saved, you have to add these kind of things. Those that would teach for the sake of sordid gain, those that would have uh, these, these false motives, right? Easy believism that says, hey, as long as you repeat this prayer, you can live your life however you want to, and you're just fine because you did 
this. But what we see in uh, Christianity is those that would repent and turn from their sin. And the picture of repentance that we see in the scripture is a turning away that turns for the rest of their life following Jesus. It is a long-term turn. It is a turn where we continue to walk and follow Jesus, where we continue to pursue holiness, where we continue to walk in newness of life. We see this picture of, of, of a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says, one of them, the prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. So this is what their own poets say about them. This is what their own people say about them. And it's true. And for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Now, now, even in this reproving severely, there's a goal for them to be healthy and those to be set straight in the faith, the goal of restoration. Verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What we see in the last part of this chapter is that this thought to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And what we see is a heart issue that Jesus pointed to, that we see what's on the inside, right, is what comes out of their lives. Jesus warned of false teachers, and he gave us this picture. He gave us this this truth, right, this same truth that we could use to spot them. In Matthew 7, in verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruits. And so here we find ourselves, a church in the wild, a church in the midst of this crazy culture, a church in the midst of where false teachers come through uh, YouTube and false teachers can come through podcasts and there's access in all of these things. And we have this responsibility. What is it? Who will we allow uh, to speak into our lives? And what we see is that their lips and their lives, that they matter, that, that the truth of what they believe matters. And the only way that we will lead a people, the only way that we will see our children safely through, the only way that we will see that happen is through engaging in discipleship, through engaging in, in this, the best defense. One of my seminary professors, Scott Pace, says this. He said, the best defense against deception is discipleship. And it is the way. And we're going to see next week, right? Next week, we looked at these leaders that are supposed to be there and, and the, the, the heart that they have to be to, to stand in conviction on the word of, of God, that they must teach the truth and that we must engage in the truth where we learn to be able to spot the lies, right? It's not how much you can be protected from the lies that are out there, but how much you know the truth, how far and how willing you are to engage in the word of God. We are to know his word, stand on his word, to live his word. And when we do, we will see see God work, but it will take a people who move from a cruise ship mentality to say, you know what, we're at war. And when we're at war, well, there is purpose and we will engage in the battle. People that will live their lives with character and with consistency, with conviction and with courage, right? We need to stand up. We need to be people that are saying, you know what, we're going to stand for the truth. We're going to live our lives with courage, right? Remember when 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 Joshua uh, was handed the torch, right? And God said, hey, uh, you, you can be strong, right? And be of good courage, right? He said, meditate on the word of God day and night. He said, allow this word to be in you so much that it'll come out of you. He said, meditate on it day and night. Let it be everything about it. And then he said, be strong and courageous. And he gave him a promise. And he said, for I am with you, whithersoever you go. He said, I'm going to be there. Jesus said, listen, the church has been given a task and we are to go into all the world and to preach and teach the gospel, making disciples, teaching them to observe all these things that Jesus has commanded, not just conversion. That is not the finish line. 
fun. But we are to make disciples. We are to engage in the mission of Christ to teach what Jesus has taught, to pour our lives out. And the way a good soldier is, their lives and their focus is not on themselves, but on the mission that's been given to them by the master. And this is the mission that's been given to the church. And as we pour our lives out, men and women, we should go to bed tired. We should be worn out every day. We should be living our lives with mission and purpose because we have been given this great task and we are promised. And Jesus said that, lo, he said, go into all the world. And then he said, lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. It's the sanctuary. He said, listen, you can go with confidence that you are never the minority and that he is always with you. And will we engage in the mission of Christ? Will we live our lives on mission? People of courage in the midst of a crazy world. Gathering as his people together to be equipped, encouraged, to be sent out with a wartime mentality, recognizing that there's a battle. There's a real battle that is going on all around us. And that battle is for the hearts and minds of the next generation. Those of you who are, who are older in the faith, who are mature in the faith, your time is not finished. Sometimes people say, you know what, I've put in my time. You won't find that in Scripture. You won't find that in Scripture. One day, if that happens to be the mentality that you have now, I would encourage you to stand before Jesus and say, I've put, I, you know, I know I didn't do much in the last 10 years of my life, but I'd already put in my time. He has called us to live every moment of our lives for the glory of his name, making disciples, engaging in the mission of Christ, a wartime mentality. Are we willing to trade our comfort and the things that don't really matter for something that will last forever? in response to his grace, in response to his mercy, that we would present our lives as a living sacrifice, that we would live for him, that we would be men that would love our families, that would love God, that would love our children, that would love people, that would engage in the mission of Christ and lead in that way. Will we be those people? Right? We see those little signs for, I think about Veterans Day, and we see those signs that Uncle Sam's looking for a few good men. God's looking for a few good men, right, and women that will stand and live for the glory of his name, that will live with abandonment for something greater than themselves, and they'll experience joy like no other. I want to invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship, and we're going to close this morning. But God, I pray, Lord, that in these moments, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has never surrendered their life to you, Lord, that their lips and their lives don't match, God, that today in the power of your spirit, God, that you might uh, convict hearts, Lord, that we might recognize, Lord, that there is no uh, way uh, to a relationship with the Father, Lord, that because of our sin, we are separated uh, from you. But in your great mercy and in your great love that Jesus came, that he stepped out from the glories of heaven, that he lived a sinless life and that he died in our place on a cruel cross and on the third day that he rose from the grave. God, I pray, Lord, that the truth of your gospel, Lord, would penetrate our hearts and that we might respond in surrender. Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, God, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would draw them, Lord, and that they would respond in surrender and that they would give uh, their lives for the glory of your name, Lord, and that they would receive the gift of your Holy Spirit that would guide them and equip them uh, to engage on mission. Lord, we uh, declare today, Lord, that we uh, can go not in our own strength, but because you are with us, Lord, that we would be strong and that we would be courageous and that we would live our lives 
for you. And God, that we would do that as you live your life in and through us. And so Lord, I pray, God, that your gospel would remind us, God, that where we feel inadequate, God, that you're looking to take a bunch of nobodies to fill them with somebody and use them to change this world. Lord, I can respond to that kind of call because, Lord, I know there's nothing good in me. But, Lord, you promise that as we deny ourselves, Lord, as we take up our cross, as we trust in you, Lord, that you would, you would fill us with your spirit. You would fill us with boldness. God, we read of a people who gathered, called on your name in the book of Acts, Lord. Lord, the place that they were gathered was shaken. Lord, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they left with boldness. God, I read of those things. Lord, I hear of a move of your Spirit in places. Lord, it leaves a marked difference. Lord, it causes change. Lord, we beg of you that kind of move, Lord, that you might fall on us and manifest your presence in such a way, Lord, that it would cause us to leave with boldness. For the glory of your name. Lord, I pray today would be a day of surrender, God, of the burdens that we have, Lord. You tell us to cast all of our cares on you. God, that may be our surrender today, Lord, just to trust you with whatever weight, whatever heaviness that's in our life. God, it might be that we surrender our very lives. Lord, that we repent of our sins and trust you for salvation. God, however you speak to us, I pray that we're obedient, Lord, and that you would change us, everyone. God, that we would, everyone, God, turn and press in closer to you. Lord, send out an army for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand this morning?